Part six of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal, Saturday, May the sixth, eighteen fifty four. Chapter eleven. The fairy palaces burst out into illumination before pale morning showed the monstrous serpents of smoke trailing themselves over Coke Town. A clattering of clogs upon the pavement, a rapid ringing of bells, and all the melancholy mad elephants, polished and oiled up for the day's monotony, were at their heavy exercise again. Stephen bent over his loom, quiet, watchful, and steady, a special contrast, as every man was in the forest of looms where Stephen worked, to the crashing, smashing, tearing piece of mechanism at which he laboured. Never fear, good people, of an anxious turn of mind, that art will consign nature to oblivion. Set anywhere, side by side, the work of God and the work of man, and the former, even though it be a troop of hands of very small account, will gain in solemn dignity from the comparison. Four hundred and more hands in this mill, two hundred and fifty horse steam power. It is known to the force of a single pound weight what the engine will do but not all the calculators of the national debt can tell me the capacity for good or evil, for love or hatred, for patriotism or discontent, for the decomposition of virtue into vice, or the reverse, at any single moment in the soul of one of these is quiet servants with the composed faces and the regulated actions. There is no mystery in it. There is an unfathomable mystery in the meanest of them, for ever, supposing we were to reserve our arithmetic for material objects and to govern these awful unknown quantities by other means the day grew strong and showed itself outside even against the flaming lights within the lights were turned out and the work went on the rain fell and the smoke serpents submissive to the curse of all that tribe trailed themselves upon the earth in the waste yard outside the steam from the escape pipe the litter of barrels and old iron, the shining heaps of coals, the ashes everywhere, were shrouded in a veil of mist and rain. The work went on until the noon bell rang. More clattering upon the pavements, the looms and wheels and hands, all out of gear for an hour. Stephen came out of the hot mill into the damp wind and the cold wet streets, haggard and worn. He turned from his own class and his own quarter, taking nothing but a little bread as he walked along towards the hill on which his principal employer lived in a red house with black outside shutters green inside blinds a black street door up two white steps bounderby in letters very like himself upon a brazen plate and a round brazen door handle underneath it like a brazen full stop mr bounderby was at his lunch so stephen had expected would his servants say that one of the hands begged leave to speak to him? Message in return, requiring name of such hand. Stephen Blackpool. There was nothing troublesome against Stephen Blackpool. Yes, he might come in. Stephen Blackpool in the parlour. Mr. Bounderby, whom he just knew by sight, at lunch on chop and sherry. Mrs. Sparsett netting at the fireside, in a side-saddle attitude, with one foot in a cotton stirrup. It was a part at once of Mrs. Sparsett's dignity and service not to lunch. She supervised the meal officially, but implied that in her own stately person 
she considered lunch a weakness. "'Now, Stephen,' said Mr. Bounderby, "'what's the matter with you?' Stephen made a bow, not a servile one. These hands will never do that. Lord bless you, sir, you'll never catch them at that, if they have been with you twenty years.' And, as a complimentary toilet for Mrs. Sparsett, tucked his neckerchief ends into his waistcoat. "'Now, you know,' said Mr. Bounderby, taking some sherry, "'we have never had any difficulty with you, and you have never been one of the unreasonable ones. You don't expect to be set up in a coach and six, and to be fed on turtle soup and venison with a gold spoon, as a good many of them do.' Mr. Bounderby always represented this to be the sole immediate and direct object of any hand who was not entirely satisfied. "'And therefore, I know already that you've not come here to make a complaint. Now you know. I'm certain of that beforehand.' "'No, sir. Sure I annot come for nowt of kind.' Mr. Bounderby seemed agreeably surprised, notwithstanding his previous strong conviction. "'Very well,' he returned. You're a steady hand, and I was not mistaken. Now, let me hear what it's all about. As it's not that, let me hear what it is. What have you got to say? Out with it, lad. Stephen happened to glance towards Mrs. Sparsett. I can go, Mr. Bounderby, if you wish it, said that self-sacrificing lady, making a feint of taking her foot out of the stirrup. Mr. Bounderby stayed her by holding a mouthful of chop in suspension before swallowing it, and putting out his left hand. Then, withdrawing his hand and swallowing his mouth full of chop, he said to Stephen, Now, you know, this good lady is a born lady, a high lady. You are not to suppose, because she keeps my house for me, that she hasn't been very high up the tree. Ah, up at the top of the tree. Now, if you've got anything to say that can't be said before a born lady, this lady will leave the room. If what you have got to say can be said before a born lady, this lady will stay where she is. Sir, I hope I never had nought to say not fitten for a born lady to hear sin I were born me said, was the reply, accompanied with a slight flush. Very well, said Mr. Bounderby, pushing away his plate and leaning back. Fire away. Ah, come, Stephen began, raising his eyes from the floor after a moment's consideration. To ask your advice, I need it over much. I were married on a Easter Monday nineteen years sin, long and dree. She were a young lass, prettier now, with good accounts of her sen. Well, she went bad soon, not along of me. Go knows I were not a unkind husband to her. I've heard all this before, said Mr. Bounderby. She found other companions, took to drinking, left off working. Sold the furniture, pawned the clothes, and played old gooseberry. I were patient we are. The more fool you, I think, said Mr. Bounderby, in confidence to his wine-glass. I were very patient we are. I tried to wean a frat, o'er and o'er again. I tried this, I tried that, I tried t'other. I had gone home many's the time, and found all vanished as I had in the world and her without a sense left to bless her sen lying on bare ground. I done not once, not twice, twenty time. Every line in his face deepened as he said it, and put in its affecting evidence of the suffering he had undergone. From bad to worse, from worse to worse. 
she left me she disgraced us then everywheres bitter and bad she come back she come back she come back what could i do tinder i'll walk the streets nights long ere ever i go home i ha gone to th brig minded to fling me sin o'er and i no more on't i bore that much that i were owd when i were young mrs sparsett easily ambling along with her netting needles raised the coriolanian eyebrows and shook her head as much as to say the great no trouble as well as the small please to turn your humble eye in my direction i appeared her to keep away from me these five year i appeared her i got in decent futurals about me again i lived hard and sad but not ashamed and fearful all the minutes of me life last night i went home there she lay upon me arston there she is in the strength of his misfortune and the energy of his distress he fired for the moment like a proud man in another moment he stood as he had stood all the time his usual stoop upon him his pondering face addressed to mr bounderby with a curious expression on it half shrewd half perplexed as if his mind were set upon unravelling something very difficult his hat held tight in his left hand which rested on his hip his right arm with a rugged propriety and force of action very earnestly emphasising what he said not least so when it always paused a little bent but not withdrawn as he paused i was acquainted with all this you know said mr bounderby except the last clause long ago it's a bad job that's what it is you'd better have been satisfied as you were and not have got married however however it's too late to say that was it an unequal marriage sir in point of years asked mrs sparsett yea what this lady asks was it an unequal marriage in point of years this unlucky job of yours said mr bounderby not e'en so i were one and twenty miss n she were twenty nigh bout indeed sir said mrs sparsett to her chief with great placidity i inferred from it being so miserable a marriage that it was probably an unequal one in point of years mr bounderby looked very hard at the good lady in a sidelong way that had an odd sheepishness about it he fortified himself with a little more sherry well why don't you go on he then asked turning rather irritably on stephen blackpool i have come to ask you sir how i am to be ridden of this woman stephen infused a yet deeper gravity into the mixed expression of his attentive face mrs sparsett uttered a gentle ejaculation as having received a moral shock what do you mean said bounderby getting up to lean his back against the chimney-piece what are you talking about you took her for better for worse i mun be ridden on her i connot bear it no more i ha lived under it so long for that i hadn't the pity and the comforting words of best lass living her dead haply but for her i should have gone hotterin mad he wishes to be free to marry the female of whom he speaks i fear sir observed mrs sparsett in an undertone and much dejected by the immorality of the people i do the lady says what's right i do i were a coming to it i a read i th papers that great folk fair for em o i wishes em no hurt 
are not bonded together for better for worse so fast but that they can be set free for their misfortunate marriages and marry o'er again when they don't agree for that the tempers is ill-sorted they have rooms of one kind and another in their houses and they can live asunders we folk are only one room and we can't when that won't do they are gowed and other cash and they can say this for you and that for me and they can go the separate ways we can't spite all that they can be set free for smaller wrongs than is suffered by hundreds and hundreds of us by women four more than men they can be set free for smaller wrongs than mine so i mun be ridden of this wife of mine and i want to know how no how returned mr bounderby if i do her any hurt sir there's a law to punish me of course there is if i flee from her there's a law to punish me of course there is if i marry t'other dear lass there's a law to punish me of course there is if i was to live wi her and not marry her saying such a thing could be which it never could or would and her so good there's a law to punish me in every innocent chilt belonging to me of course there is now a god's name said stephen blackpool show me the law to help me there's a sanctity in this relation of life said mr bounderby and and it must be kept up no no dunnot say that sir tain't kept up that way not that way tis kept down that way i'm a weaver i were in a factory when a chilt but i got an een to see we and een to hear we i read in th' papers every sizes every sessions and you read too i know it with dismay how the impossibility of ever getting unchained from one another at any price on any terms brings blood upon this land and brings many common married folk again i say women fur oftener than men to battle murder and sudden death let us have this right understood mine's a grievous case and i want if you will be so good to north law that helps me now i tell you what said mr bounderby putting his hands in his pocket there is such a law stephen subsiding into his quiet manner and never wandering in his attention gave a nod but it's not for you at all it costs money it costs a mint of money how much might that be stephen calmly asked why you'd have to go to doctor's commons with a suit and you'd have to go to a court of common law with a suit and you'd have to go to the house of lords with a suit and you'd have to get an act of parliament to enable you to marry again and it would cost you if it was a case of very plain sailing i suppose from a thousand to fifteen hundred pound said mr bounderby perhaps twice the money there's no other law certainly not why then sir said stephen turning white and motioning with that right hand of his as if he gave everything to the four winds tis a muddle tis just a muddle altogether and the sooner i am dead the better mrs sparsit again dejected by the impiety of the people pooh pooh don't you talk nonsense my good fellow said mr bounderby about things you don't understand and don't you cure the institutions of your country a muddle or you'll get yourself into a real muddle one of these fine mornings 
the institutions of your country are not your piecework, and the only thing you've got to do is to mind your piecework. You didn't take your wife for fast and for loose, but for better for worse. If she's turned out worse, why, all we've got to say is she might have turned out better. Tis a muddle, said Stephen, shaking his head as he moved to the door. Tis a muddle. Now, I'll tell you what, Mr. Bounderby resumed, as a valedictory address. With what I shall call your unhallowed opinions, you've been quite shocking this lady, who, as I've already told you, is a born lady, and who, as I've not already told you, has had her own marriage misfortunes to the tune of tens of thousands of pounds. Tens of thousands of pounds! He repeated it with great relish. Now, you've always been a steady hand hitherto, but my opinion is, and so I tell you plainly, that you are turning into the wrong road. You've been listening to some mischievous stranger or other, they're always about, and the best thing you can do is to come out of that. Now you understand. Here his countenance expressed marvellous acuteness. I can see as far into a grindstone as another man, farther than a good many, perhaps, because I had my nose well kept to it when I was young. I see traces of the turtle soup and venison and gold spoon in this. Yes, I do, cried Mr. Bounderby, shaking his head with obstinate cunning. By the Lord Harry, I do. With a very different shake of the head and a deep sigh, Stephen said, Thank you, sir. I wish you good day. So he left Mr. Bounderby, swelling at his own portrait on the wall, as if he were going to explode himself into it, and Mrs. Sparsit, still ambling on with her foot in the stirrup, looking quite cast down by the popular vices. Chapter 12 Old Stephen descended the two white steps, shutting the black door with the brazen door-plate, with the aid of the brazen full stop, to which he gave a parting polish with the sleeve of his coat, observing that his hot hand clouded it. He crossed the street with his eyes bent upon the ground, and thus was walking sorrowfully away when he felt a touch upon his arm. It was not the touch he needed most at such a moment, the touch that could calm the wild waters of his soul, as the uplifted hand of the sublimest love and patience could abate the raging of the sea, yet it was a woman's hand too. It was an old woman, tall and shapely still, though withered by time, on whom his eyes fell when he stopped and turned. She was very cleanly and plainly dressed, had country mud upon her shoes, and was newly come from a journey. The flutter of her manner in the unwanted noise of the streets, the spare shawl carried unfolded on her arm, the heavy umbrella and little basket, the loose long-fingered gloves to which her hands were unused, all bespoke an old woman from the country, in her plain holiday clothes, come into Coketown on an expedition of rare occurrence. Remarking this at a glance, with the quick observation of his class, Stephen Blackpool bent his attentive face, his face which, like the faces of many of his order, by dint of long working with eyes and hands in the midst of a prodigious noise, had acquired the concentrated look with which we are familiar in the countenances of the deaf, the better to hear what she asked him. "'Pray, sir,' said the old woman, "'didn't I say you come out of that gentleman's house?' 
pointing back to Mr. Bounderby's. "'I believe it was you, unless I've had the bad luck to mistake the person in following.' "'Yes, missus,' returned Stephen. "'It were me.' "'Have you? You'll excuse an old woman's curiosity. Have you seen the gentleman?' "'Yes, missus.' "'And how did he look, sir? Was he portly, bold, outspoken, hearty?' As she straightened her own figure, and held up her head in adapting her action to her words, the idea crossed Stephen that he had seen this old woman before, and had not quite liked her. "'Oh, yes,' he returned, observing her more attentively. "'You were all that.' "'And healthy,' said the old woman, "'as the fresh wind.' "'Yes,' returned Stephen. "'You were eating and drinking, as large and as loud as a hummerbee.' "'Thank you.' said the old woman with infinite content. Thank you. He certainly never had seen this old woman before, yet there was a vague remembrance in his mind, as if he had more than once dreamed of some old woman like her. She walked along at his side, and gently accommodating himself to her humour, he said Coketown was a busy place, was it not? To which she answered, Eh, sure, dreadful busy. Then he said, she came from the country he saw, to which she answered in the affirmative. By parliamentary this morning. I came forty mile by parliamentary this morning, and I'm going back the same forty mile this afternoon. I walked nine mile to the station this morning, and if I find nobody on the road to give me a lift, I shall walk the nine mile back tonight. That's pretty well, sir, at my age, said the chatty old woman, her eyes brightening with exultation. "'Deed tis. Don't do it too often, missus.' "'No, no. Once a year,' she answered, shaking her head. "'I spend me savings so once every year. "'I come regular to tramp about the streets and to see the gentleman.' "'Only to see him, returned Stephen. "'That's enough for me,' she replied, with great earnestness and interest of manner. "'I ask no more.' "'I've been standing about on this side of the way to see that gentleman,' "'turning her head back towards Mr. Bounderby's again. "'Come out. But he's late this year, and I've not seen him. "'You came out instead. "'Now, I'm obliged to go back without a glimpse of him. "'I only want a glimpse. "'Well, I've seen you, and you've seen him, and I must make that do.' "'Saying this, she looked at Stephen as if to fix his features in her mind.' and her eyes were not so bright as they had been. With a large allowance for difference of tastes, and with all submission to the patricians of Coketown, this seemed so extraordinary a source of interest to take so much trouble about, that it perplexed him. But they were passing the church now, and as his eye caught the clock, he quickened his pace. He was going to his work, the old woman said, quickening hers too, quite easily. Yes, time was nearly out. On his telling her where he worked, the old woman became a more singular old woman than before. "'Aren't you happy?' she asked him. "'Why, there's almost nobody but has their troubles, missus,' he answered evasively, because the old woman appeared to take it for granted that he would be very happy indeed, and he had not the heart to disappoint her. He knew that there was trouble enough in the world, and if the old woman had lived so long and could count upon his having so little, why, so much the better for her, and none the worse for him. Aye, aye, you have your troubles at home, you mean, she said. Times, times, just now and then, he answered slightly. 
but working under such a gentleman they don't follow you to the factory no no they didn't follow him there said stephen all correct there everything accordant there he did not go so far as to say for her pleasure that there was a sort of divine right there but i have heard claims almost as magnificent of late years they were now in the black by-road near the place and the hands were crowding in the bell was ringing and the serpent was a serpent of many coils and the elephant was getting ready the strange old woman was delighted with the very bell it was the beautifulest bell she had ever heard she said and sounded grand she asked him when he stopped good-naturedly to shake hands with her before going in how long he had worked there a dozen year he told her i must kiss thy hand said she that has worked in this fine factory for a dozen year and she lifted it though he would have prevented her and put it to her lips what harmony besides her age and her simplicity surrounded her he did not know but even in this fantastic action there was a something neither out of time nor place a something which it seemed as if nobody else could have made as serious or done with such a natural and touching air he had been at his loom full half an hour thinking about this old woman when having occasion to move round the loom for its adjustment he glanced through a window which was in his corner and saw her still looking up at the pile of building lost in admiration heedless of the smoke and mud and wet and of her two long journeys she was gazing at it as if the heavy thrum that issued from its many stories were proud music to her she was gone by and by and the day went after her and the lights sprung up again and the express whirled in full sight of the fairy palace over the arches near little felt amid the jarring of the machinery and scarcely heard above its crash and rattle long before then his thoughts had gone back to the dreary room above the little shop and to the shameful figure heavy on the bed but heavier on his heart machinery slackened throbbing feebly like a fainting pulse stopped the bell again the glare of light and heat dispelled the factories looming heavy in the black wet night their tall chimneys rising up into the air like competing towers of babel he had spoken to rachel only last night it was true and had walked with her a little way but he had his new misfortune on him in which no one else could give him a moment's relief and for the sake of it and because he knew himself to want that softening of his anger which no voice but hers could effect he felt he might so far disregard what she had said as to wait for her again he waited but she had eluded him she was gone on no other night in the year could he so ill have spared her patient face oh better to have no home in which to lay his head than to have a home and dread to go to it through such a cause he ate and drank for he was exhausted but he little knew or cared what and he wandered about in the chill rain thinking and thinking and brooding and brooding no word of a new marriage had ever passed between them but rachel had taken great pity on him years ago and to her alone he had opened his closed heart all this time on the subject of his miseries and he knew very well that if he were free to ask her she would take him he thought of the home he might at that moment have been seeking with pleasure and pride of the different man he might have been that night of the lightness then in his now heavy-laden breast of the then restored honour 
self-respect and tranquillity now all torn to pieces he thought of the waste of the best part of his life of the change it made in his character for the worse every way of the dreadful nature of his existence bound hand and foot to a dead woman and tormented by a demon in her shape he thought of rachel how young when they were first brought together in these circumstances how mature now how soon to grow old he thought of the number of girls and women she had seen marry how many homes with children in them she had seen grown up around her how she had contentedly pursued her own lone quiet path for him and how he had sometimes seen a shade of melancholy on her blessed face that smote him with remorse and despair he set the picture of her up beside that infamous image of last night and thought could it be that the whole earthly course of one so gentle good and self-denying was subjugate to such a wretch as that filled with these thoughts so filled that he had an unwholesome sense of growing larger of being placed in some new and diseased relation towards the objects among which he passed of seeing the iris around every misty light turn red he went home for shelter end of part six